All right. Um, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, going to go away from Luke just for today, at least. And um, we'll be in Daniel chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 1. And I'll just start by asking a rhetorical question, not one to answer out loud, but, but think about it as I ask it. What is in a name? What do names represent? If I am to say the name Michael Jordan, there's probably an immediate thought that comes to your mind. Basketball. Um, you might even expound upon that. Many people think he's the greatest of all time. Um, so his name brings that to, to memory, to, to, to thought. Names come to mean things. George Washington's name means something. Adolf Hitler's name means something. For better or worse, Donald Trump's name means something. I guess it depends on your perspective uh, today, right? Um, names call to our mind many things. Feelings of happiness. Feelings of despair. Feelings of anger. Feelings of joy. Respect. Disdain. Names bring to our remembrance a great number of things. Think about your name. When people think about your name, you want them to think something good, something positive. When I am no longer on this earth, I want people to think of my name and say, he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was faithful. He was a loving husband, a loving father, a loving grandfather, maybe by then. Um, And you, I'm sure, want the same types of things said about you. Um, We see that in Scripture, too. Your name is part of your identity. It is a part of who you are. So as we look at the book of Daniel this morning, I love the book of Daniel. Uh, It is part history. It is part prophecy. But it is all about our great God. And as far as the history goes, it's personal. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of Israel here in a minute. But it's not so much about the history of the whole nation as it is the history of a few select young men, and, and one in particular, but a, but a few in general. And these young Jewish men spent a long time being strangers in a strange land, per- persevering to, as Deuteronomy 6.5 would have taught them, to love Yahweh their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their might. They would have to hold tightly to that which meant the most to them through times that were probably tougher than anything you or I will ever have to go through. Probably. Which makes me wonder, do we hold on to what means the most to us? Better yet, what does mean the most to us? It just so happens that what meant most to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah was represented in their very names. So I want to start by reading Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. 
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths who in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So uh, the first thing that we see in this passage is the captives in their captivity. As we enter into the text here, we are centuries removed from the glory days. Israel had achieved its, its zenith, its, its, its earthly apex during the reigns of King Solomon and King David before Solomon. So that's, we're talking about 400 years in the past. It has been a long way down since then. The kingdom was divided. There were ten tribes in the north that retained the name of Israel. And then the two tribes in the south that held on to the Davidic heir as their king. They were known as Judah. Judah was the kingdom that in general was more obedient to God, which is not saying much, but but they were in general more obedient to God. If you ever go through a list of the kings in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, what you're going to find is that Judah has a few where it says they did right in the sight of the Lord, but Israel doesn't have anyone who was the king who, who it said that about. So Israel, the northern kingdom, starts off badly with Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13, and it doesn't get any better than that. It's a long way down, and then finally God had enough of their rampant sin and their rampant idolatry. So in 722 B.C., He ordains the Assyrian Empire to come in and basically crush the northern kingdom, period. In fact, historians to this day are try- still trying to figure out what happened to them. What happened to all of them? There's still a lot of mystery about that historically. Judah lasted a little bit longer, a little over a century longer. But like Israel before them, like their brethren to the north, they abused God's patience as well. They fell into sin. They fell into idolatry. They had a few good kings in there. A few really good kings actually. But they also had some very, very bad kings. So beginning in... 605, there is this series of events over the course of about 20 years where Babylon is ordained by God to come in and he exiles the vast majority of Jews to Babylon by the year 586 B.C. And this is the time and these are the events that surround Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And we see the contrast between two kingdoms when we think about it. One is Judah, which is the remnant of God's chosen people. And then a second kingdom, Babylon, is powerful, pagan, and very idolatrous. You have Jehoiakim, who is the wicked king of a wicked uh, people that are being judged. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is the wicked king of an empire, above all else, seeking to magnify his own glory. You've got Judah, that is supposed to be in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back in Genesis 17. 
But they are taken to Babylon in the plain of Shinar in the land God told people to depart from in Genesis chapter 11. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom stretched forth from the very place people tried to build a tower and reach heaven on their own and rob God of His glory. So you have that going on. You have this one people, imperfect, representing the people of God and this kingdom that they are exiles in, the embodiment of secular humanism, the embodiment of wickedness. The kingdom of Judah had brought God's judgment upon themselves. But as Babylon thoroughly decimated Judah over the course of about 20 years, including the temple, the Solomon's temple, they, they destroyed it, instead of simply crushing all the people into oblivion, Nebuchadnezzar sought to increase his own might by using the best of what Judah had to make Babylon even greater. So what he did was he orders his chief of officials, Ashpenaz, bring in some of the young men of Israel, including some of them were part of the royal family, some were of noble descent, bring them to Babylon, bring them to me, let's see who is fit to serve in my court. And these were young men, probably no older than 17 years of age. We would call them teenagers today, but they were young men in that time. And, and they, in whom there was no defect. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that these were sinless people. It doesn't mean that they were perfect in every way. What it means, though, is that they were the best of the best. They were, as we just read, they were good looking. King doesn't want people around him who, who maybe aren't the best looking. He wants people who are going to make him look good. So they were good looking. They were smart, intelligent. They exhibited wisdom. They showed a degree of understanding in different things. They were knowledgeable and discerning. What they were was they were rich in gifts that the Jews recognized were associated with the Spirit of God. Yahweh had blessed these young men. So they were perfect to serve in the court of the king of Babylon. They were physically well. They were mentally sharp. They were socially aware. They had it all. But in order to be loyal to the king of what was then the most powerful empire on earth, they would need something taken away from them. And what they needed to be taken away from them was their Jewishness. Their identity as Israelites, as Jews. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be Babylonian. He wanted them to read like Babylonians, talk like Babylonians, eat and drink like Babylonians, learn like Babylonians, so that when they began to think of themselves, they would think like Babylonians for the glory of Babylon, for the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. So an entire generation of the elite of God's chosen people were shipped 900 miles east across the Middle East from Judah on the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River and Babylon, they are taken from the promised land to be captives, these strangers in a strange land. Captives and their captivity. So in verses 6 and 7, we see something else. We see their identities and the idolatry that surrounded them. Look at 6. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So they get new names. For King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, it's not enough to take these people out of their land and make them slaves. They have to strip them of their very identity. Okay? So to Daniel, they give Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah is Abednego. And on the surface, when you consider all the other things going on in their lives, the fact that they are are taken almost a thousand miles away from their home, to change their names may not seem like such a big deal. What is the big deal about renaming them? I mean, even to this day, when you think about these people, we think about Daniel as Daniel, but we don't think about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We think about them with their, their, their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, if I was to ask you just randomly who are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you probably don't know. If I ask you who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, oh, fiery furnace, right? Well, why is this an important way for Daniel to start this book, for the Holy Spirit to start this? It's because names mean things. Names mean things in life. I've got a last name that identifies my family and everyone in my family. Names mean things. It's even more true in the Bible, and it's especially true in the Old Testament. You see, Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are Hebrew names, Jewish names, and all of them have meanings which point upward. All of their names point to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Yahweh. Each of their names includes part of a biblical name of God. Okay? Daniel. You hear that L sound at the end of Daniel. In fact, a second ago I kind of pronounced it Daniel which is probably more of what it sounded like when they were talking. Okay? And that's because El is short for Elohim. And Elohim is the Hebrew word for God that we see in the very first verse of Scripture. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So Daniel, that name means Elohim, God, is my judge. God is my judge is what Daniel means. And then you have Hananiah. And you hear at the end of Hananiah that ah, or, or it's, it's probably more like Hananiah. That Yah sound is a shortened form of Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God that He revealed Himself as to Moses at the burning bush. Whenever you see the, the word Lord in your Old Testament with the lower capital letters O-R-D, that's really the name of Yahweh that's been changed to Lord there. I wish it wasn't. I wish we had a translation that did it right, but we don't yet. So, that means, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. What a great name. In fact, the, the, the name Hannah means grace. Even today, right? Okay? So, there you go. Mishael. You hear that L sound again at the end of that name. means who is like God. It's a, a form of Michael, who is like our God. Mishael, who is like God. And then Azariah, you hear the Ah, the Yah again. Yahweh is my helper. Those are great names. Those are names which point to the character of God, the one true God. 
So these names meant something. I, you know, I kind of wish we put more thought into the names we give people. Okay, but but not so much in our culture anymore, and that's okay. I, I mean, we can get over that. But in the Bible, we are we would do well to avail ourselves of what the names mean because it's a very important part of of what we read in Scripture, and again, especially in the Old Testament. So these names are. <coughs> Grounded in the character of God. Whenever would, someone would call these young men by name, it would be a constant reminder of the reality and the presence and the character of Yahweh, of Elohim, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a reminder of the one true God. So the Babylonians stripping these men of their names is not a small thing. It goes to the heart of their desire to destroy their memory of Judah. And more importantly, destroy their memory and knowledge of their God. But they didn't stop there. Because it's not enough for the Babylonians to strip something away. They have to put something else on them. So they give them new names. Names which not only mock the one true God but names which extol the false gods of Babylon. To Daniel, they assigned the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. You may have heard uh, one of the, the prevalent names in the Old Testament for a false god is Bel. Now, whether or not this is the same one or not, I don't know. It really doesn't matter because Bel doesn't exist. Okay, Bel doesn't exist. But the Babylonians worshipped him as if he existed. And so they changed Daniel's name from Elohim, God is my judge, to Baal, protect the king. Instead of trusting in Yahweh to judge and protect the king, they worship Baal and want him to protect the king. So they're mocking Daniel and God by twisting his name into an abomination. To Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. They give the name Shadrach, which means command of Aku. That's another one of their false gods was Aku, uh, the supposed god of the moon. So when you go to look at the moon tonight, Aku didn't make that, okay? Just so you know. So Hananiah's name goes from extolling the grace of God, the grace of Yahweh, to celebrating the might of a false god. Third, Mishael, Meshach. He goes from being called who is like God to who is like Aku. Uh, and, and, and that's just a flat out, probably the most deliberate of all the attempts in changing their names to spit in the face of Judah's God, um, to, to mock him. And finally, you have Azariah, and his name means Yahweh is my helper. Yahweh is my helper. He's called Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. So. Azariah goes from being one whose name recalled an acknowledgement upon God for our need of Him and our dependence upon Him to referring to the help of a false god. So King Nebuchadnezzar is in charge of all this. And he is seeking to magnify his own glory. Now, if we were to go on in Daniel, we would see that things didn't end up too good for Nebuchadnezzar until... By all account, by, by, by Daniel's account, really, he comes to actually know the true God eventually. And, and I think we'll see him in heaven. I really do. 
But, but he, at this point, is an evil, vile, wicked king seeking to magnify his own glory. He's going to set up a golden image not too far down the line. And he endorses this strategy <clears throat> to strip these men of their identities as children of God, make them Babylonian to the core, and in doing so, he is mocking the one true God because in reality, he sees himself as God. Okay? So the question would become, would these Jewish young men allow the Babylonians, allow the culture they lived in to dictate to them who they were, or would they, in the midst of this evil culture, in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, find their identity in Yahweh? And we find our answer to that in verse 8. And I'm just going to read the first few words of verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. He would not eat the king's food, which violated the law of Moses, the dietary laws, God's command. You say, what's it going to hurt just to eat what they put in front of you? Because God made the laws for the Jews. Okay? So Daniel made up his mind that he could live on vegetables, that he could live on water, that he could trust that God would take care of him. Daniel made up his mind that he would not let the king of Babylon define who he was, but instead he would find his identity in the eternal king, the one true God who is really God. He was prepared to suffer. He was prepared even to die rather than break the law of God because they were God's laws. He's acknowledging the sovereignty and the supremacy of Yahweh even as He has been stripped from the land that Yahweh promised them to serve this evil king. And I wonder this morning, would you respond the way Daniel did? even if it meant getting thrown into the lion's den, as he eventually would be. Would you respond the way we know Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did, even though eventually they would end up in a fiery furnace? Actually, I got that backwards, don't I? Daniel's in the lion's den. Yeah, okay. Never mind. I like both stories. They are. They're not stories either, are they? The fact of the matter is, just as God told the people to leave the plain of Shinar only to have them stay, you and I have an enemy this morning who wants us to return to places God has called us to leave. We are in the midst of a culture that is just as wicked as Babylon, I'm convinced. And and rather than telling us to bow down and worship a golden image, our culture has tried to mix everything together and call it Christian. Everything together and call it religious. Everything together and call it right. We mix our politics with religion. We mix our entertainment with religion. We mix anything and everything with our worship. We've been called to obey the commands of God in a culture that gives lip service sometimes to the commands of God and other times spits in God's face. And God has told us to come out 
from among them and be separate, for He is the Lord. So we are called to leave sin behind. We are called to leave our old lives behind. We are called to abandon our own self-sufficiency and leave that behind and depend wholly, fully on God. We are called, we are commanded to reside in the promised land and that promised land is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, it means that you are not of this world. You have, for the time being, a dual citizenship. You are an American, but your citizenship is also in heaven. And that is the primary citizenship for a Christian. So you are an alien. That's what Peter says. You are a stranger in a strange land. You are not of this world. But we live in a world in which it seems like we are in captivity with no choice but to serve the world. But God is sovereign, and we've got to remember that. Even in our perceived captivity, God is sovereign, and He has freed us from sin. I almost wish, as I was thinking about what to talk about today, I knew I was going to do something a little bit different. I almost just waxed on sanctification for a few minutes this morning. And how God has called us to be set apart. God has called us to be separate. And that sanctification, that God's making us holy, it's Him doing it. He's called us to something different. Even in the midst of a culture that hates Him. So just like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, believers in Jesus are of royal descent. You are an adopted son of the eternal King. You are an adopted son or daughter of the living God whose Son Jesus Christ is the King of kings. But even as those who have royal blood, which we do if if it's Christ's blood that has saved us, we've got to realize that just as we've been called to go out into the world and make disciples, that world is Babylon. That world is Babylon We live in Babylon and it despises what is true. It despises what is right. It's going to be hostile to the truth. It's going to be hostile to holiness and holy living. We live in a world where the name of God is blasphemed every day on our televisions and on our mobile devices. It doesn't take long to find that. I can't tell you how many people I've blocked on Facebook or or muted just because of the things they'll post. And they're, they're friends. I don't want to unfriend them. But I don't want to see it either. Okay? But we live in a world that's so hostile. We live in a world where in much of it you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ freely. Carrie right now is on a continent where there are countries where you will die if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where millions of unborn children have been slain in the name of a woman's right to choose, in the name of convenience. We live in a world where our entertainment and our news information and our public education system is by and large heavily influenced by an agenda that is not indifferent, but is indeed hostile against the truth of God's Word. We live in Babylon. We live in a wicked, wicked world. 
And the saddest part of that fact is you and I find ourselves all too often setting aside the glory of God to approve of the things of the world and sometimes seek the approval of the things of the world. There's nothing more dangerous, beloved, than friendly captivity. There's nothing more dangerous than being seduced by the world. And and all too often we are way too friendly with the way of sin. We are far too accommodating with things that go against what the Word of God says. We are far too accommodating with error as opposed to truth. We are too quick to claim we are disciples of Jesus, but then live just like an unbeliever lives. Not take stands for what is right. Go along with the culture. Go go with the flow in the culture defining what is permissible so that there's no discernible difference between our lives and anyone else's life. If someone were to examine my life, if someone were to examine your life this morning, would they be able to tell which kingdom is your home? Would they identify you with Christ or as as a Babylonian? Would you be Daniel or would you be Belteshazzar? What's in a name? A whole lot, as it turns out, because if you believe in the Gospel, then you bear the name of Christian. And what does that name represent? It represents the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents the Messiah. It represents God the Son, who is the Lamb of God in whom there was no defect. It represents the One who has borne the full fury of the Father's wrath against all sin for all time, for all who will ever believe. And then He was raised from the dead. The name Christian means you are an ambassador of the King of Kings. The name Christian represents the one who is supreme and sovereign over every single thing without exception. The name Christian represents the summing up of all things. It represents the one who gives us life. It represents the name and 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 what it that name and all it represents has to be what is most important to us this morning. It has to be what we identify ourselves as first. Before I'm a privet, I'm a Christian. Before I'm a North Carolinian or an American, I am a Christian. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I belong to Yahweh. It's easy to say that on Sunday morning. It's harder to say that the longer the day goes on and Monday, and Tuesday, and so on. We will, after we leave this room, go back into Babylon. Maybe you'll go somewhere for lunch, you'll go to work tomorrow, you'll go to school tomorrow, you'll go into Babylon, wherever it is. Will they see you as Daniel? Or will they see you as Belteshazzar? Beloved, May we be found captive to the Word of God. And may it be clear to everyone, to to one another and to everyone outside these walls to whom we belong.
such that our identity, our name, our character, and our mission are bound up and fully belong to and have been given to us by Jesus. And I'm just going to close by saying none of this matters if you don't know Jesus. It is easy to say I'm a Christian here, but if you aren't prepared to say I'm a Christian out there, you have to ask yourself, do I really know Him? Does He know me? The scariest words in Scripture I've probably told you all before are from Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? And He'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Thanks be to God that He shows us grace, that Yahweh is gracious, that Yahweh is our helper, that Yahweh is our judge. As we bow, as we pray, as we sing, as we respond to the Word of God, ask yourself, ask God, where do I stand? Am I living like Daniel? There's an old hymn. I'm not going to sing it because I don't even remember the words. Dare to be a Daniel. I wish we would. I hope we will. To the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that as we are in a Babylon of our own, we would be obedient to your call. We would be those who find our identity in you even in the midst, even in a culture that hates you. May you receive the glory and honor and may we be conformed to Christ's likeness today to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.